Exodus chapter 9. The book of Exodus chapter 9. Follow along with me as I read. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go, and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock. All right, let's pause just really quick, dude. Right there, when it's talking about the idea of livestock, there are over 2,000 gods in Egyptian worship. And, and these, each week as we've been preaching through these plagues, have, have brought you several different examples one of those examples to today is a guy named um, Apis, A-P-S, excuse me, A-P-I-S. Um, there are several, again, within the 2,000 gods, like Osiris is, is referenced as a bull, right? This, this guy, uh, Apis, is referenced as a bull or the bull god. There are some goddesses that have like bull heads. So again, when God attacks one of these plagues is that he is attacking the gods of the of the Egyptians all right so it has a purpose typically specifically in this case livestock has a lot to do with a person's wealth all right even God himself says that he owns uh, a thousand cattle right on a thousand hills that's the way to describe him our God is really wealthy okay all right let's keep reading a severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. You're going to circle highlight verse 4. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land, and the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died. All right, let's pause right there. I want you to circle the word all. All right? Now, when you read the Bible, if you are a good reader, and we should have learned this early on in our education, I did the first grade twice because I could not read, and that is not a joke. All right? Um, reading is really important, all right? But inside of the Bible, if you're a good reader, you're about to know something. God has just said in his word that he's about to kill all the livestock. But in a couple of verses later that we're about to read, guess what's still alive? Some livestock. When the Israelites are eventually set free, guess what chases after them? A bunch of Egyptian soldiers on horses, but the Bible See, it's a contradiction, right? We need to understand that in Hebrew, just like in English, that all does not always mean all. Here, specifically, it's even talking about he's about to kill all of these livestock animals, but where are they located? There are some out in the field, and there are some like in their stables, this week I was talking to somebody really close to me about this point because, again, this is a huge part of contention for a lot of specifically non-believers. They're like, see, the Bible contradicts itself. He kills all of livestock, and then later on it mentions livestock. See, gotcha. Well, I was talking to my friend this week. She's really pretty, got blue eyes, blonde hair. She must know something about this. She's like, you know, Eric, it's kind of like when the song says, everybody in the club. It doesn't mean everybody. In a, the way that only she could say that. All right? Everybody follow me now? See, all you, some of y'all like, oh, now nah, I got you. I was the DD at the club that everybody was getting tipsy at. Okay? It don't mean everybody. Just like this doesn't mean all. So quit it. That's bad reading. No one does that. It's like in marriage, when you say, every time you do blank, really, every time, or you never, you never do it, really, 
Everybody got me? Everybody got me? There you go. Write that down. And the next day, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And the Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of the Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. All right, let's pause there just for a second. What I want you to do is circle box in the word kiln there. Why is this important? Well, for a few things. God is turning something on its head. If you remember a few days back, God made it really hard on the Israelites by making bricks. This is what they did for Pharaoh. To harden those bricks, they would use a kiln to do so. All right? And so Moses is about to do the LeBron James. In time before LeBron James plays a ball game, he goes over to the powder station, he grabs the powder, he puts it in his hand, he blows it, he throws up in the air, right? Shekinah glory falls all over the crowds. In this, Moses is doing something similar. He goes to what was once oppressive to the Israelites. He grabs up ashes from it, which was also a common form of worship done by the Egyptians. If you can imagine, the, the magicians and the sorcerers would often pray to their gods and goddesses and throw like incense up into the air, dust and soot and all of this sort of stuff. Except this time, it's not done by magicians and sorcerers. It's done in mockery by God's man, his prophet. You see the difference. You see what God's doing here. All right? Verse 9. It shall come, become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took their soot and from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in the sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all of the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Uh, this is in reference as well to the goddess Isis. I-S-I-S. She's the goddess of healing. So. God is going to send boils to kind of make war against her. Verse 13, the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Highlight verse 14, for this time I will send my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Go ahead, continue to highlight verse 15 and 16 as well. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would not have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all of the earth. Circle, highlight Verse 17, the very beginning part where he's speaking to Pharaoh and he says, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail. This is to the to one of the gods. This is to the God called Nut, <laughs> N-U-T, like it sounds, the God of the sky. I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never seen has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hell fails, falls on them. Highlight verse 20. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. Highlight verse 21. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and the livestock in his field. Verse 22. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the heaven and so that they may uh, be hell in all of the land of Egypt on man and beast in every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward the heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hell and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hell upon the land of Egypt. There is hell and fire flashing, continuing in the midst of hell, of the hell, very heavy hell such as never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hell struck down everything that was in the field in all of the land, both man and beast. And the hell struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Highlight verse 26. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hell. Verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and said to them, highlight this verse, this time I have sinned, the Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder in hell. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone uh, out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hell so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down for they were late in coming up. So Moses went up from the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hand of the Lord and the thunder and the hell ceased and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. Highlight verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hell and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go, just as the Lord spoke in through Moses. Chapter 10. Then... The Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and his heart of his servants, and that I may show you these signs of mine among them. Highlight verse 2. That you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandsons how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the hero, Hebrews, highlight this verse. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hill. They shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and all of the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor of your grandfathers have seen from the day that they come on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord your God. Do not let not yet understand that Egypt is ruined. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and with our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go. And the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you were asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may call, come upon the land and eat every plant in the land, all that the hell had left. So Moses stretched out his hand, staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was in morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, which was a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. 
and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field. Through all the land of Egypt, the Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I like this verse. I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord that your God to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the, the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Verse 21, you're doing great. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, and there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all of the land of Egypt for three days. Quick pause. This is Ra, or Amun-Ra, is the God that is being attacked here by God. All right? This is um, one of the penultimate gods in Egyptian um, pagan worship. He is the sun god. Every time you see him in the morning, that is the resurrection in life. Every time he ducks in the west, it is the, the death, all right, um, of, of him. So every day he's in this cycle of death and resurrection. That's what he represents, okay? He is worshipped, Amun-Ra or Ra. All right, verse 23. I like this verse. They did not see one another, nor did anyone arise from, from his place for three days. But all of the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go and serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, and that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me and take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. This is the word of the Lord. I appreciate your patience with that. You did great. The first thing that we see inside the study of the, the plagues is this picture, again, of God's holiness. We see this picture that God is setting himself apart, that he is distinct from all other gods. And specifically, when he is speaking into the Egyptian culture, he is speaking at this idea of, again, 2,000 plus gods or goddesses. They would often worship animals and a variety of animals in all of these sorts of ways. Even in the book of Romans, Paul alludes to not only that the Egyptians, but the Romans, which would also include us as Greek people, is that we have a tendency of, of wood or stone, of gem, of so on and so forth, to really be bent toward the worship of many different things, including God's creation in a variety of different ways. We, we take the creator God, we look at his creation, and we prefer his creation over creator making a God of that very thing. We see over Pastor Justin's sermon last week and the sermon this week that there's going to be a total of nine plagues. We're covering nine of those between last week and this week. We'll cover the last one next week on Resurrection Sunday. But in this, that God is showing through his purposes and plans of the, of the plagues that he is distinct, that he is unlike all of these other gods and goddesses. And so with that, I've got a list. I'm not going to preach every one of these points, but I do want to show them to you quickly, is that in this list, I think that there are eight things, eight things. There we go. 
All right. God shows that he is distinct against all of these other gods and goddesses. And if you want this, man, I'll send this to you. Don't worry about writing all this down. I, I just want you to hear this more than anything. Is that God in these passages is that he is one destroying the false gods. This is what we call, it's being polemic, means to, to make war against. I told you about a month ago that I believe that behind the ideas of Many of these gods and goddesses are actually demonic. They're real, if you want to say that. They are, um, they're real gods. These things really exist. They just have demons behind them. They have these uh, once heavenly beings behind them, consuming, leading people astray, so on and so forth. He destroys the false gods. Again, we could give you name after name after name for every one of these plagues that he's coming against. He judges and punishes the wicked. All right? Who's, who's glad to wake up to be an Egyptian to be covered in gnats? Right? Woohoo! Grasshoppers everywhere. Frogs. All right? Flies. One fly drives me absolutely insane. All right. You ever see those people on television or animals watch planet Earth, right? And an animal will be just covered in fly. And you're like, that poor animal. I'm not worried about the lines. I'm like, let's beat to death every one of those. You just like do like that all the time. It drives me insane. And this is what's happening to these people. It is judgment against them. All right. He multiplies. Excuse me. Go back to number three. He decreates Genesis. Have you noticed that? That the plagues decreate Genesis. There is the, the creation of livestock. In Exodus, what do we see in the plagues? It is the killing of that. We see the, the, the making of man and woman. But what will we see? We will see the death. We, we see inside the book of Genesis, we see God make the luminaries in the sky, the sun and the moon and all that sort of stuff. What's he do in Exodus? He decreates it. He makes everything go dark. He multiplies his signs and wonders as miracles to his chosen people. This is very important for you and I to get. When you see these plagues as uh, an Egyptian, again, you're seeing them as, as punishment. You're seeing them as God making war. It's causing you to question everything about that which you worship. But as an Israelite, these are not punishment. These are miracles. Every time he brings harm to the Egyptians and leaves them distinct and set apart, What's he doing? He's showing them that he is their God. It's not that these people are off, you know, worshiping Yahweh on Friday night and Saturday for the Sabbath. If anything, the picture is, is that a lot of Egypt has gotten into the Israelites. They're not worthy of being set apart. But through the plagues, they are remembering as God is illustrating these miracles every time he brings punishment to the Egyptians. He is bringing a miracle to the Israelites. He delivers his people. But why? It's not just so that they can be set free. He delivers them so that they may go and worship him. We'll come back to that. He, again, makes them a distinct people. He sets them apart. He evangelizes the lost through the spreading of his name. Again, if you read the rest of the Old Testament and even the New Testament, the most quoted story or a thing that is alluded to is the story of the Exodus. Later on, the Israelites are going to be spreading out throughout the promised land. And whenever they come to like a new person, guess what those people already know about? Oh, we better be careful with the Israelites. Their God? Did y'all hear what their God did to the Egyptians? It's for the spreading of the fame of his great name. Number eight, he points out to a final judgment and future recreation. Genesis, creation, exodus, decreation, revelation, judgment, final judgment, and the recreation on this earth of Eden, of the garden. There's a new heaven and a new earth. If you read 
Genesis, Exodus, and Revelation, there's these locusts, there are these darkness, there is life, there is death. They're, they're all sandwiched in there together, all right? So in this, God is, through his providence, revealing that, again, that he is distinct. He is not like Ra. So imagine you've grown up as an Egyptian, you know, I don't know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, uh, right? Let my people go, right? If you grew up singing that, I'm so sorry, okay? But you grow up as an Egyptian worshiping the sun like some of us do. Love that vitamin D, right? We, we, as an Egyptian, you would worship Ra, that it wasn't just a, a ball of gas providing light and heat for us here on earth, but it, it literally was a God, Amen-Ra, Ra, you worship him, sacrifice to him, you tried to appease him over and over and over and over again, but then all of a sudden, these little Israelites who have been slaves have come in, they start talking about this guy named Yahweh, and Yahweh can turn off and on the light switch. Well, what does that do about your God? Well, Ra's not that powerful anymore. If we have this goddess of healing, I mean, I even hate the word boil. How you doing? Well, I got some boils. What do you do? <laughs> I mean, I, like, I can see a picture of poison ivy and get it. That's how allergic I am. All right. This last uh, fall, I was deer hunting. I set up my deer stand, all this sort of stuff at the farm, and man, I I I, I hugged a tree, and I knew it when I did it. I was like, mm, it's "Not gonna be good." All right. But I was out there by myself, trying to climb up twenty feet up a tree, up a tree, huffing it. All right, while carrying my tree stand. Both are dumb, especially at forty-two. Well, I, I end up getting poison ivy, and it was perfectly on my, my arms, like this right here, where I'd hugged that tree, and it had the vines, not just the leaves, the vines. But actually, the vine cut me, and where it cut me got super infected with poison ivy that then got into my bloodstream. See, I didn't know all this because I wore sleeves in the fall, not, so you didn't see my boils. Because I had a blister. I showed it to my sister and Todd, and obviously my wife because everybody needs to see it. Um, I had a, a blister on this arm, and it's still, you can see a little bit of red there, um, that was the size of a quarter blister. That's nasty. So your entire life, you've been praying for healing. And, and you have to understand that, that heavy acne during this culture, especially... Um, in New Testament times, lots of talk about leprosy and these sorts of things. Um, man, heavy case of acne could be considered by these people. I mean, they're freaking out by your rashes. And yet God has the ability not only to affect your livestock, the light switch, but your skin, your body. God is distinct in his power and in his scope. See, it took 2,000 gods and, and goddesses to do all of this different stuff. So you're constantly, well, what's this ailment? Or what's going on here? Or, or we're having fertility problems or barrenness or all, all of these sorts of issues. And so you've got this chart. You've got this map. You've got every little thing that's happening inside of your life. You've got a god or a goddess to it. And so it's like, okay, we've got to do this today to appease this god. We've got to do this today to appease this goddess. If we want to make it through Scottsville Road by hitting a green light after green green light after green light, never get stopped, then we better get to this God or goddess over here today. That's how you're living your life. Thousands of gods. God is distinct because he is one. God is making war against all of these gods and goddesses. He's making a mockery out of them. They look foolish. They look ignorant. They, they look stupid. He dismantles 
all of the Egyptian gods and goddesses. He destroys what they worship. Now, if you really love Jesus, you get really ticked off. Now, if you don't really love Jesus, it's not a big deal to you. But you get real. If you really love Jesus, and this is very serious for you, man, you start messing with Jesus and messing with His church, and people get really, really upset. Why? Because it's not just something flippantly on the surface. You're you're talking about the very core and nature of who these people are. And God has just done this. They are left in ruin. They're left in ruin. Their whole culture, their whole way of life is gone. Not just monetarily, but in what they worship. God is distinct. Well, if God is distinct, then so is God's if God is distinct, then so is God's people. We, we even see him use this terminology in chapter 8, verses 22, and then what I read to you today in chapter 9, verse 4, that God would set his people apart. So imagine, this is the way I, my mind works, but imagine on the day that it gets dark, that everything is pitch black dark where you are in, let's say, Memphis, not Tennessee, Egypt. And yet way off in the distance, you can barely see your hand in front of your face, but way off in the distance, imagine this, if you can do this, wrap your mind around it, everything is black, everything is dark. But way out in the distance, like you're up on Sea Rock City, you know, uh, isn't that Sea Rock City? Sea Rock City, right? You go up top of the mountain, you see like seven states in Tennessee, Chattanooga. So you're, you're up on that mountain, you, you look out, and everything is pitch black dark. But it's like there is a beam of light that's just coming down on Goshen. And who lives in Goshen? The Israelites. There is something different about those people than us. God is choosing, not because they deserve to be distinct, but God has chosen for them to be set aside. See, our God is holy. He is set apart. And if He is holy, then in the same process has called what? Us to be holy. He has called us to be distinct, not because there's something in us to make us that way, other than the fact that He has chosen to do that. See, a Christianity that has lost its weirdness in the sight of the world isn't Christianity. Say that again. Christianity that has lost its weirdness is not Christianity. Meaning this, if you look like, smell like, act like the rest of the world and yet are claiming to be a Christian or the church is doing... Because it's not just churches made up of individuals who form together a unity of the body of Christ. And so if they're all not being weird, then even whole churches from its leadership down, guess what they can be? They can call themselves Christian, Baptist, all they want to. And yet not be Christian. God has called us to be set apart. We are his people. We are uh, to be different. Jesus brought division amongst people. Jesus brought distinction amongst people. Jesus said, "Is it? I did not come to bring peace, but the sword. When we think to the New Testament, when Jesus starts talking, what's he talk about? Sheep and goats. Those are not the same thing. Weeds and wheat, not the same thing. Feast or famine, hell or heaven. In Christ, there is both inclusion of every tribe and nation, but also exclusion that if it's not through me, then it's lost. In the book of Ephesians, we see in the passage where Jesus says that he lays down his life for who? The bride, the, the church, to what? Sanctify her, to make her holy, that she be cleansed by the washing of, the, of water with the word. 
In 1 Peter, he's going to talk about this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. God has chosen to do these things. He has chosen to set these people apart. What should they get? They should get the punishment. That's what they deserve. And yet God has so chosen in his mercy and in his grace, because even in the plagues, guess what God does? He illustrates his mercy even in punishment to the Egyptians because he could have made it much, much worse. Even in the passage that we read, he even says, I could have wiped you out completely. But he gives them opportunity after opportunity, even Pharaoh himself, an opportunity to come back to him or to come to him for the first time. In our distinctiveness, what makes us distinct? And I'm going to give you some quick things here really quickly. I think we have a list for these as well, so you can write them down. Our distinctiveness is, is formed in what we worship. As believers, what makes us weird is that we, one, worship the God of the Bible alone. We are his possession. We are his people. See, Pharaoh, in the passage that we read, you see this kind of tug and war. It's like, okay, okay, I'll let you go for a little while, but you can't take everybody, and then you got to come back to me. What is Pharaoh saying? Pharaoh is saying is that, okay, here's the deal. I, I, I want you to worship your God, but you can also, you got to worship me. That, that, that it's got to be both. And yet, what does God declare over and over and over again? No, these are my people, and I am their God. So what does he do? He attacks the very thing that they worship. Philip Reichen, pastor and president of a, uh, a Christian school, he says this. He says, that if Pharaoh would not let God's, excuse me, if Pharaoh would not let go of God's property, then he would suffer the loss of his own. So God is going to come at whatever Pharaoh worships the most. See, God, brothers and sisters, will not be mocked. We will be humbled by him and his greatness and his holiness. Or we'll be humiliated by it. Going to be humbled or humiliated. See, we worship, as Pastor Justin alluded to last week, that we worship God in his own terms and not on our own. Yet how, how many of us and how many people do we know are constantly wanting that mix? I want to worship God, yes. That's the cultural right thing to do. That's, that's who we are. We're Americans and we're Christians. And yet I also want to worship these other things. If we go back to the 2,000 gods that are found in Egyptian culture, and I would say that there are millions upon millions probably of other gods and goddesses in the world as well. But if you really scale all of those down, it has been said, and I would agree with, that pretty much that all gods and goddesses can be scaled down to three. It's the god of relationship which I would include sexual intimacy or sexual activity in that. The God of wealth. And the God of power. Personally, I believe that there's demonic forces behind every one of those. If you take the 2,000, scale it down, you really have three. But you can take that scale down further. 2,000 to three. To one. And you know who that one is? It's you and it's me. We're the gods and goddesses. Not in a divine sense, but in a worship sense. And what does God say from Genesis to Revelation? He will not share his power. He will not share his glory. He, he will not share the magnitude of all that he is with anyone else. See, our, automatically, our temptation is to go, man, this Pharaoh guy is a nut. 
He's lost his ever-loving mind. Can you believe that people, you know, in, in even foreign countries today, they'll be starving. But if you mess with cattle, you got a problem. Because literally, the worship of these animals are sacred. It's like when the frogs came. And because they worship the frog goddess, you can't kill the frogs, right? God will not be mocked. He will not share anything. And so in this, in this scene that we see between God attacking all of these gods and goddesses, it's, it's like that scene inside of the Wizard of Oz when they, they rip back the curtain to reveal that the wizard is just an old man pushing buttons. It's foolishness. And brothers and sisters, every one of us in here wrestle and struggle with the fact, and if you're in Christ, this has been illuminated to you, that you're prone to do this. Brothers and friends, if, if you are yet to be in Christ, see, you become hard-hearted and blind to the fact that you are the number one God in your life. And I want you to know, God takes that attack on his character and his nature very serious, and he will not share his position and his throne with you. Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, he will say, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And you can fill that blank where it says money with a lot of things. You're being controlled by your relationships. You will seek ungodly relationships or seek to impress people that you and I don't even like. For that relationship. God wants to give us the gift of sexual intimacy, but what are so many people doing? What is the struggle for, for many of us? Is to get it by other means outside of the boundaries of marriage. We will justify, we'll, we'll play house with each other, we'll make all sorts of decisions based on these relationships, wealth and, and power. You start talking about, man, pulling people away or, or start, if you really want to make people angry, start getting into their pocketbooks. Have something stolen from you. Power. And we will lie still, manipulate people to be in positions of power. And God will not have it. We are called as believers to worship God alone, the God of the Bible. Because brothers and sisters, friends who have gathered here today or watching on Facebook Live, is you and I will ultimately become like what we worship. We will become like it. That's what the Egyptians are doing. And it's so easy to put ourselves like, man, I'd be on the side. I'd be like Aaron. No, you're Pharaoh. You're Pharaoh. I'm Pharaoh apart from Jesus. You and I will become like what we worship. As believers, we should be unapologetic in our narrow-mindedness and focus on the God of the Bible alone. It is about him. It is for him. The Egyptians worship to appease the gods. However, the God of the Bible is worshiped. Why? Because you and I cannot appease him. Have you considered that? All the Egyptians are constantly doing are trying to appease these gods. Man, if I just give this, if I sacrifice this, if I burn these offerings, then man, maybe we will be fruitful and we will be fertile and, and we will have wealth and we will have power. We will have relationships and all these sorts of things. And yet the God of the Bible, he just declares from, the, from Genesis chapter 3, guess what? You cannot appease me. I can only appease myself. And because I can't accomplish that, you will reap the benefits of my son as the sons and daughters, as the prince and princesses, as the, the keys of the kingdom are given to his kids to play. But it can only be accomplished because only God can appease God. We worship God alone. 
We've lost our saltiness. Is it possible? That in the world that we have lost our saltiness, we've lost our weirdness. Brothers and sisters, may we worship God alone. Number two, we worship God through his word. In Exodus chapter 9, verses 20 through 21, in talking about the livestock, he says, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left the slaves and his livestock in the field. And guess what happened? They died. Whenever you and I do not obey the word of God and his word alone, guess what happens? Death. Death happens. I mean, we must really ask ourselves some serious questions because the character and nature of God is under attack, ladies and gentlemen, and so is his word. And do you really believe that the Bible that is on the device in your hand or in the journal or in the Bible that you're holding, do you really believe that that is the word of God? We're distinct as Christians because we believe that it is his word. We worship God through this word. See, we live in a, a time where, where worship as our lifestyle is often driven by some sort of emotional experience, and yet that's not how we worship according to the scripture. We worship through sound theology that then drives our emotional connection and affections to this God. That's, that's why we've got to know this word. We've got to know. Now, if you're a new Christian here today, I am not talking about you. Welcome, brothers and sisters. Man, we want to get, I want to give you, walk alongside of you, give you the ABCs of how to study the Bible, who God is. We do that through MCs, do that through women's studies, men's studies, all sorts of things. We will walk alongside of you as a new Christian. But if you are claiming in this place to be a Christian for many years, as Paul would say, you should be teaching, you should be preaching, you should be leading Bible studies, you should be doing these things, handing and eating meat yourselves, but rather you've become just gluttonous on the milk. In some way, shallowness toward God's word has become the epitome of what it means to be a Christian. Man, let's just make it easy. Let's just be real shallow. Let's keep the cookies on the lower shelf. Man, at Mission Church, this doesn't make us better. It's just a huge desire of ours to be God, uh, to be faithful. We don't have any problem trying to be God. We're all trying to do that. But we will not apologize for having a high view of God and a high view of His Word. You may be in a place of shallowness. Don't become complacent with where you are. The goal isn't, again, to win an argument through this information. The goal is to have our heart's affections stirred. I don't know about you, but man, Exodus has, has really been good for me. As it is stirred, as I've learned these things, it is stirring affections for God that had waned or had lost or had been misguided and misdirected as I'm being revealed gods and goddesses in my own heart as me trying to be the master of my own domain is seeking to be worshipped through all of these things, how I can so easily adrift away from God and yet he is pursuing over and over and over again and he, he he's saying through his word like he's saying to all of these people guess what it's so just so ignorant for us to worship anyone other than the God of the Bible so important for us number three we worship through being living sacrifices Again, over and over again in the plagues. What does he say? I want these people to be set free. Why? So that they can go and sacrifice, worship through sacrifice. In Romans chapter 12, Paul is going to tell us that we don't have to, we don't sacrifice any animals. Aren't you glad of that? Like next Sunday, Passover weekends, like I'm so glad that you're not bringing animals with you. Okay? If you did, that's what we let pastoral candidates do. Handle that portion. All right? But why? Because the ultimate sacrifice has been get through Jesus. But also, Paul tells us, which Jesus would tell us, the Holy Spirit tells us, that we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. That is what we now sacrifice. 
You'll hear all the time within church this idea of giving a tenth of your paycheck. And it's hard to see that in the New Testament. But you know what you do see in the New Testament? That all your paycheck is the Lord's. You'll see people say, I've got a friend, he loves to say this, and I know why he's saying it, and it's good, and I don't, I don't try to beat him up for it or anything like that, because the sentiment is good. The statement is false. Well, I believe that the Lord has called us to give 10% of my, my paycheck, 10% of my time, and 10% of my talent. Man, it's hard pressed to find that in the New Testament. Do you know what you will find? Again, all your paycheck is his. All of your time is his. All of your talent is his. If you, if you give 10% to the church and you waste 90% on child pornography, it doesn't equate to faithfulness. In a world that is divided on everything, from culture to politicals to economics, all these sorts of things, including like, who makes the biggest chicken sandwich. It's Chick-fil-A, as long as you get rid of that nasty pickle. That is disgusting. Spicy, spicy chicken sandwich, toss the pickle. Because you should not eat those. Fake news, that's funny. Don't get me started on that. I fake news, you're fake news. <laughs> Take that, Twitter. All right. We love to be debated about everything, divided about everything. But followers of Jesus are to sacrifice our personal convictions to put distinct gospel unity on display for the world. So that's what makes no sense. It makes no sense if I'm a non-Christian to get onto social media and see people who are claiming to be a part of the same body beating each other up. We give it all, time, talent, treasure. Number four, we worship through a life of service. Through service, we obey his word. Again, the plagues were for a mission. They were evangelistic. They, they worshiped through religious practices and devotion. They consumed with worship, the Egyptians. And yet, what? They worshiped falsely. They worshiped wrongly. If we believe and act like this world in our sacrificing and in our service, then again, it doesn't make us Christian, does it? No. So with that, in closing, got just a few minutes here. It's asking the question this morning, is if God is distinct, and he's putting all of his, his attributes and his character on display against all of the gods, but primarily he's whittling all of that down to speak not directly to, you know, Nut, the sky goddess, or Ra, the sun god. He is doing that, but is ultimately is fighting through all of that to get to the God that is sitting on our own heart's affections. And that's you and I. And so it begs the question, if our God is distinct, then Pastor Eric, Lord, friends, family, mission church, you got to ask yourself a very serious question this morning is, are you distinct? Because if you've really met the resurrected Jesus, there is going to be something really irritating about you to the rest of the world. And I'm not talking about niceness. You can be nice and happy, and annoying, and go straight to hell. But that you are so consumed with the character and the nature of God, of who He is. And please, let me, I know that this is church stuff, but man, have you ever heard of the statement, it's like, man, a preacher really stepped on our toes today. I never want to do that. Because that doesn't mean I don't want to say hard things. But, but here is what I know, brothers and sisters and friends, is that you can leave this gathering today with bloody toes and have a hard heart. The goal isn't bloody toes. The, the point is to ask God to do something that only He can do. I can bruise the heck out of your feet. 
but I can't change the heart. In these passages, we see Pharaoh give in a little, don't we? He was willing to, to give a little, but not all of himself. I, 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 I claim you, Jesus. I, I claim you, God. Okay, God, the God of the Israelites is going to do what he says he's going to do. Pharaoh is at that point. He has slight belief. Even the magicians are saying, this is the finger of the Lord. And yet it's a counterfeit confession. Sam Albury from Emmanuel Nashville in God's Sovereignty tweeted out this week. He said, regret means this. I'm sorry about what I did and that it has had the consequences it has had. That's regret. But repentance is I'm sorry for the kind of person who did what I did. There's a catastrophic difference between those two things. Pharaoh regretted, but he refused to repent. Is there something different about you and how you interact with your spouse, your kids, your neighbors, your co-workers, your grandkids? It's concerning to me that it's possible for you and I to feed on the light of Christ every Sunday morning while being gluttonous on the darkness throughout the rest of the week. My concern is, as one of your pastors and one who will be held accountable for what takes place in this room, and I, I mean this again, and asking God as He called people to repentance, so I am trying to be faithful to call you to repentance because, brothers and sisters, I am concerned that there are people on our membership role that do not have a relationship with Jesus. That has everything to do with your heart, not your toes. There is something distinct about God's people. And as it is imperfect, as we are seeking and striving to pursue after godliness, at least there is, man, there is evidence of Christ's likeness and, and molding and, and, and confession and conviction and, and repentance that is taking place inside of their lives. And so with, with this, man, I've got so much that I did not get to, but this. Today is traditionally known as Palm Sunday, as, as Brian was mentioning earlier. And if you know anything about Palm Sunday, this is the Sunday, like when Jesus has been riding into town, it's, it's a few days before he's supposed to die, and what are they doing? They're waving palm branches, like Jesus is on a donkey. I've been to a church where a man rode an animal. It did not go well. Okay? Palm branches, everybody. We're singing, Hosanna, right? Save us now. Everybody got palm? Anybody been to that church? few of you got palm branches, everybody just waving them weeds everywhere, like this, like they're directing airplane traffic, all right? Hosanna! You sing songs with Hosanna that day, right? Jesus rides in on a donkey, and the people of Israelite, the Israelites are, what are they doing? Hosanna, save us now, save us now. The Bible says they take off their cloaks, they're laying them down as Jesus rides this donkey as this triumphant king is there to take over. And yet in Luke chapter 19, as Jesus gets closer and closer to the city, he begins to descend out the Mount of Olives and he looks out on the city. And what does the Bible tell us? That he weeps. And you know why he weeps? Because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief. Now, what are you talking about? They've just been singing Hosanna from, since Bethany, waving the palm branches, throwing their cloaks down so you could trample on it. And you imagine being disciples that day? I'd be, I'd be like Conor McGregor. I'd be walking next to that dude. I'd be like swelled out chest. <laughs> Jesus is riding into town. We got this. We're about to show y'all. And Jesus gets close and he breaks down. Some of you would claim he's over-emotional. He's too sensitive. He breaks down because the people are all consumed that they're worshiping Jesus. But what does Jesus know? They're not 
And in 40 years from that moment, this entire place is going to be destroyed because they missed who he really was. And God is going to let the Romans burn it down in 70. Jesus, you're awesome. You don't know me. See, Jesus was portrayed by a kiss. By a kiss. A form of intimacy. It's believed that Jesus, Judas on the last Passover, that Judas was sitting right next to Jesus in a place of honor. Didn't stick a knife in his back. Placed his lips on his cheek. Because the Jesus that he had been worshiping for three years wasn't the God of the Bible. And he had missed it. Let it not be said of you and I. Let us know this, Jesus. The God who is distinct. The God who will not share his power and his glory with you, me, or anyone else. But it is because he is that powerful that he can appease himself and offer himself, all of himself, his enemies, the keys to the kingdom.